This is The Radical Therapist, a space where we explore the intersections of collaborative therapy, philosophy, art and science and technology in a post-Freud, post-psychology world. Welcome to The Radical Therapist. This is your host, Chris Hoff. We are now at episode number 76, and as always, thanks for tuning in, and we have a great one for you today on curiosity, something I'm really passionate about and I think is really important and something I really aspire to for myself to live a life of curiosity or leaning into curiosity, even in difficult situations. And so we have uh, Eva Sweidler on today, and she's going to, she wrote this article that a colleague of mine, Justine, a a past uh, guest on the show sent to me because we were doing some writing around the loss of curiosity in our field. And uh, it just really was a great article, and so I invited Eva to be on the show, and she said yes, and it's, we just had an awesome conversation I think you're going to really like. Uh, but before we get there, I, uh, I'm going to rant. I don't often rant, but I'm going to rant. Uh, I wrote, yeah, just bear with me here, and I want, your, I want your feedback, but I wrote an article last year called The Trouble with Instagram Therapists, and if you haven't read it, just Google it. It's on Medium. I wrote, it posted it on Medium, The Trouble with Instagram Therapist, and it created a little bit of a stir. I got some DMs from some very prominent um, Instagram therapists, and it wasn't, it was just uh, kind of a, I mean, we have to look at our own practices with a critical eye. It's something I believe in. And I was just kind of taking on, um, I'd read a post, uh, or somebody posted a, you know, prominent Instagram therapist posted something and it's this thing that's happening again. I'm seeing it happening again where they'll say something like, you know, you know, how do you know if you're in a narcissistic partnership, excuse me, or how do you know if you've experienced so-and-so in your life, childhood trauma or something like that, right? And then they give you five to 10 categories of considerations, which You know, like my friend says, is like the newspaper horoscope. You know, you can read any one of them on any given day and find yourself in them. And and that's not to knock astrology, anybody that's fans of astrology. But we all know the newspaper astrology is probably not your best your best (laughs) avenue for that. But um, so anyway, so it's kind of like that where it just is. It is like that. It's where you can find yourself in any of it, right? And and I think that's problematic. And I think we need to um, look at some of those practices with a critical eye. I often hear Instagram therapists saying, well, w- this is not therapy, you know, and uh, we're just being helpful. But then they do this really kind of armchair diagnosing of their audiences. And um, and some of it, I think, is innocent and trying to be helpful. And in some ways, probably is. I'm sure somebody's going to get back to me and say, yeah, that, you know, I find some of that stuff helpful. And that's great. But I also think a lot of it is problem-focused, deficit-based, lacks curiosity, and any nuance or complexity. And um, and I just think there's another way to do that. I, it's just a practices or practices that I'm not... Uh, I'm just troubled by. And um, so I just wanted to put that out there and maybe have people think about what you're posting. 
what the effects might be. Is there another way to do it that creates a little more curiosity, uh, makes a little more room for complexity or nuance, and um, doesn't um, problematize people's experiences or lives, right? Uh, so that's my rant. Be careful on, on how we communicate. Pay attention to the power and authority that you're given, even though you try to discount that in particular ways, but that, that it's always there and, um, and people take you seriously. And so I think that's really, really important. So that's my rant. Uh, so let me know what you think. Tweet at me. Come on Instagram. Find me on Instagram at The Radical Therapist or come to the Facebook page and uh, let me know what you think. Or even better, go read, go re- go reread my article, The Trouble with Instagram Therapist. Google it, Chris Hoff on Medium. Anyway, okay, let's get to our show. Thank you for uh, accommodating my rant and let's get to our show. It is really a good one. I think you're going to be, uh, you're going to walk away from this one with a lot of thoughts. So... Uh, let's get right to it. Our guest, Eva Maria Swidler, was on the faculty at Dewey-inspired Goddard College for 10 years and currently teaches at the Curtis Institute of Music and University of the Arts in Philadelphia. She worked for over 20 years in women's health as an RN, nurse midwife, and nurse practitioner, and homeschooled, unschooled her daughter for 12 years of school, in quotes. Trained as an environmental historian, she currently writes in the fields of political economy and capitalism studies and the politics of higher education. Uh, and you could, uh, we'll leave you some information on how you can reach her at the end of the podcast, So, um, and you might want to reach out to her after this. But without further ado, let's get to our guest, Eva. All right. Hi, Eva. Welcome to the Radical Therapist Podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. Okay. All right. Well, let's just get started. I, um, a, a colleague of mine recently sent me an article you wrote titled, Curiosity is Political. We must nurture it if we hope to change the world. And we were both excited about the article, and so that's why I reached out. And and in it, I guess I want to start in it, you introduced me to a word I wasn't familiar with, which I love getting introduced to new words and ideas. Yeah. And the word is agnotology. I think I'm saying that right. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners, what is agnotology? Yeah. Um, well, I think it, it's probably useful to just pause for a minute and, and talk about a word people might be more familiar with, which is epistemology, yeah. which is usually... Um, sort of, you know, a shorthand definition is a study of how we know what we know, uh, but it's a, a, a term from the field of philosophy. So it's fairly abstract. It's um, really about um, how and um, how the world is reflected in our thinking and understanding. So it deals with questions of objectivity, whether we can really know truth, how completely we might know truth, interpretation, those kinds of abstractions. And agnotology um, is is a word that was invented um, just a few decades ago, and it bills itself as the study of ignorance rather than the study of knowledge. Mm. So um, it, it asks parallel kinds of questions like, why don't we know about certain things? What do we know about and what don't we know about? Um, and what can that tell us about 
how we're filtering or understanding the world. So it's almost like a shadow uh, of epistemology, the study of ignorance rather than knowledge. Great. Okay. Um, and in the article, you argue that neither epistemology nor agnotology has engaged in any notable way with the idea of curiosity. So I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, um, I guess I would I would maybe not characterize what I said quite as an argument. I, okay. Maybe I don't feel quite well-versed enough. I mean, I spent quite uh, a while interlibrary learning books and um, <laughs> reading up on this, but I'm not a philosopher um, and I'm not a psychologist uh, or educational psychologist. And those are the three fields that have really dealt with agnotology mm. in any detail. Um, I'm a social scientist. I'm a historian by training and I consider myself to be sort of a social studies, social science kind of historian rather than a humanities style of historian. Mm. Um, so uh, I really just made an observation that I was shocked um, at how um, very little there was uh, about curiosity um, that was written even in the fields of psychology and education, um, but certainly once you move outside those fields to the social sciences, there was virtually uh, there was virtually nothing. Um, and um, I, I thought that was a real lack uh, because um, to me, curiosity is how the social world, the cultural world, gets translated into the individual's mind. It's sort of a key part of that link. And, you know, we, we all know, I think, that cultures and our positions within society um, generate certain kinds of worldviews and understandings, um, but there's not been a lot of attention to how that actually happens. So for me, curiosity is um, a way that we can think about how that translation occurs. And the social sciences should be really interested in how um, the world we live in really plays out in our, in our own emotions and our mindsets and who we are. And curiosity, um, as when you think of it as the desire to learn, um, is really the mechanism by which our worldviews get shaped. Uh, it, it, it is what um, directs our attention to some things and directs it away from other things. So um, it's really um, a, a key, um, key feature, I guess, of humanity that I feel is, is lacking in, in uh, social science understanding. Agreed. And I, and I think I was telling you before I hit record that in our field as well, and it's something we're very interested in. But uh, I don't know if argue is the right word, but you ad you certainly advocate for the political and moral value of certain kinds of curiosity, uh, a, a curiosity which, in the words of Michel Foucault, evokes the care one takes of what exists and what might exist. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that. Yeah, um, I think a key um, a, a key to to that statement is that there are many kinds of curiosity. Mm. So in English anyway, curiosity is kind of a catch-all term. And um, it certainly un includes under its umbrella um, some kinds of curiosity that are not only hmm, amoral, but perhaps immoral. So, um, you know, you can, it, 
includes a certain kind of aggressive, ambitious, greedy, acquisitiveness for knowledge that might have an ul ulterior motive um, that's quite explicit or just a motive of wanting um, knowledge as power over others. Sure. Um, I think the example I use in the, my article is if you, you think sort of of Victorian curiosity prospecting the world and as part of its imperial knowledge gathering project. Mm. Um, there's also a curiosity that is we have a, a different word for it. Um, uh, we have, we modify the word. We often will talk about idle curiosity or um, oh, there's another phrase that we sometimes you'd use. Um, it's not coming to mind. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a form of curiosity that is really about uh, distraction, about distracting yourself. Uh, it's almost a way of not attending to where you are and what's happening around you. So, um, you know, that could, I mean, we could argue over whether that's amoral or sometimes immoral in a certain, in certain sense. Um, but then there's a, a subset of curiosity that I think of as a, a moral um, form of curiosity, which I've, I feel like we could maybe use the word wonder or wondering rather as a way of sort of separating it a little bit from other forms of curiosity. Um, and I've sort of toyed with it. Um, I haven't seen anybody else use this, which isn't, doesn't mean that others haven't used it because it's a big world out there. But I think of this as a curiosity that contains within it um, respect. So um, it engages with ideas of other minds and other realities. It's about um, cultivating understanding and empathy. And it really rests to me on a respect for the thing that you are um, being curious about. And I actually read a, an article um, by a fellow named, I think his name is Carl Goldberg, um, who talks about this kind of curiosity as um, necessary for the development of conscience. Mm. Um, if you think of conscience as um, sort of allowing uncertainty about your own views and investigating the possibility of different answers to what is right and wrong, and then having to make a moral choice after suspending your sort of dogmatic certainty. Um, he argues that that really involves a fundamental exercise of curiosity and says that without curiosity, we can't have a conscience. So um, I think that there's certain kinds of curiosity that are not, that are necessary for, for, more, for active morality. That's great. And I, I really appreciate your definition as well. And okay, you also write, um, I'm going to quote, to build and maintain alternative politics, communities and social worlds, we need to pursue a deep curiosity about other people, other beings and other ways of living. But in order to make room for curiosity in our society, we need to make fundamental social changes. Meanwhile, curiosity is being actively squelched as a threat by those in power actively suppressed as a form of self-defense by those under cultural attack and is everywhere displaced by free-floating cultural anxiety, unquote. And I wonder if you could say more about these fundamental social change, what, what these fundamental, fundamental social changes might be. And, and do you see this lack of curios curiosity happening like kind of across the board? I'm going to, uh, like on the right, in quotes, is also on the left, in quotes? Yeah. Right. Um, so I... Um, I feel um, sometimes I used to be in a previous, well, I don't want to say previous life, because sometimes people take me literally and think I mean <laughs> that I believe in reincarnation, which I don't. In a previous career, uh, I was a nurse midwife and a nurse practitioner. And I used to laugh 
um, that I, I felt as though I was giving what sounded like, you know, offhand, ungrounded advice to people when they had illnesses, because I, I was telling everyone that they needed to eat a lot of vegetables and uh, they needed to sleep and they needed to avoid sugars and they needed to exercise. And, you know, those are actually um, directly linked to um, breast cancer, directly linked to diabetes, to all kinds of uh, really concrete diseases. So um, I, I feel as though the social changes that are, um, to me, what are necessary for us to allow curiosity to flourish, because I don't think you can create it. I think you make room for it. It's, it's actually mm. part of human nature. And I say that, um, that that's meaningful me to, for me to say, because as a historian, I believe that human nature is incredibly malleable. There's very few things that I would say are part of human nature. But when you look at infants, I think we can safely say that curiosity is part of human nature. Mm. So we have to just sort of make room for it and then uh, trust that it will blossom in the correct circumstances. Mm. Um, you know, we can encourage it and support it, but we can't make it happen. It's an intrinsic state. So um, these social conditions are really, to me, key for why curiosity is suppressed and um, what we need to do to give it room to grow. And, and the social conditions that I think need to change are the same ones that um, need to change for so much else. I don't think they're really, they are very directly responsible for the um, killing sometimes of curiosity, but they sound sort of like, you know, the, the broad prescription that we would give for a healthy society. So um, in particular, I think social inequality is behind um, multiple facets of our, our culture and social functioning that are really detrimental to curiosity. Mm. Um, so competition and hierarchy provoke fear, shame, defensiveness, anxiety, uh, insecurity and senses of precarity. I mean, all we need to do is look at the world right now and we see this rampant. All of those emotions have been shown, not just sort of speculatively, but in psychology studies um, have been shown to inhibit and, and kill um, curiosity. Mm. For curiosity, you need a sense of support, um, a, a sense of a suspension of, um, of judgment by others um, of you. It also requires um, a, a certain amount of comfort in yourself. It's an internal state. It's a self-motivating state. So you kind of have to have some... I don't know if I would say self-knowledge, but some self-acceptance um, to sort of hear your own voice and follow it, trust that it is of interest to you rather than looking externally for reinforcement or cues of what to be interested in or what to do. You have to listen to your inner voice and you have to have some sense of your own efficacy, some, some trust or hope at least that you can fulfill your own curiosity in order, you know, you, that you're going to go out there and investigate and you can do something about it. So people who, who have been made to feel very passive also lose curiosity because they have no sense that they could do anything about it, even if they wondered. Mm. Um, so I, I think if I had to come up with one thing, I would say what we really need to do is drastically reduce inequality. And then all of the things that go with it, surveillance and judgment um, control and from the top down rather than allowing voluntaristic um, autonomy. Um, so maybe I should just say inequality. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that works. Okay. Um, and do you see a, this lack of curiosity happening across the board um, politically uh, or? Yeah. You know, I, 
I sadly enough, I think I do. Mm. Um, I guess I haven't really entertained that question too much before now, but um, I, I think unfortunately that the, the social circumstances really militate for everyone. Everyone mm. is under incredible pressure. Everyone is falling into defense um, and, de- you know, sort of, you know, building their, their, their little, um, their forts. And um, it's not possible to be curious yeah. from that, from that stance. So unfortunately, I do see it across the board. And I guess the other thing I didn't mention that um, is linked to inequality, but maybe stands a, a little bit apart, is the other, the other thing that I think we really need for curiosity to flourish is time. Mm. We need time and um, a sense of abundant time Mm. rather than a sense that we should be productive um, with like almost like a capital P, Mm. sort of a puritanical obsession with efficiency um, and a product. And um, that's something that's in um, short supply across the political board, all of these social conditions really apply to everyone. And I, I think the left might have a, a moral desire to have curiosity or could, could respond to an appeal, a moral appeal to cultivate curiosity more um, uh, readily <laughs> than the right. But yeah. uh, in its sort of knee-jerk reaction, I, I think it, it's not too curious right now either. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. Okay, so in your writing, you are also critical of our conventional education system, describing it as a place where the flattening of free-range curiosity happens. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, there's actually been a, a, a decent amount of, of writing, I would say, from the world of progressive education. Right. Um, so progressive education, meaning not sort of politically progressive, it's a, a sort of a very specific term um, from within the field of education for a certain uh, approach to how learning happens, although it does typically have some political affiliations as a result. Um, So Alfie Cohn is one person um, who uh, comes to mind, uh, Herbert Cole, who wrote um, a famous essay called I Won't Learn From You, which is basically about the refusal to be curious um, in situation, in certain kinds of school situations of, um, you know, top-down enforcement, or where students feel their culture um, being belittled, that they um, one of the only things that students have control over hmm. is their curiosity. It's something that belongs to them. It is internal to them. It belongs to them, and they can offer it and they can withhold it. It's one of their only tools or weapons. And so, um, in a lot of circumstances, they do withhold it. And so, the field of of progressive education has dealt with that question to some extent, but um, even in more mainstream education um, research, um, people have shown that the controlled circumstances of school are really not conducive um, to curiosity. Not that schools couldn't be designed differently, but anything that we'd recognize as a typical public school at any rate these days is not going to be conducive, partly because it's product-oriented, and curiosity is not. By by definition, it's open-ended. It's about the process, um, and you don't know what you're going to discover and you might not discover anything. And that's part of the the bargain. Whereas schools are really focused on mastery of specific content and on instruction. So Paolo Freire uh, talked about education. I think it was him. It's a famous quote from someone. um, talked about education as um, not the filling of a bucket, 
but the lighting of a fire. Mm -hmm. And um, education, as we have it, is what he called the banking theory of education, which is the deposit of information, which can be withdrawn at some future date. So as long as we approach education in that way, um, and our schools are about transmitting content or delivering content, as the phrase um, is is frequently used in my classes this spring. My universities talked about delivering content. Mm-hmm. Um, I was supposed to be the deliverer of content. And I said, right. "Well, that's not actually what I do." <laughs> <laughs> nope. um, uh, so, education as we know it, and schooling as we know it, just really doesn't allow for that kind of open-ended exploration. And a good deal of the social purpose of education these days, I think is to sort and rank students. It's That's what grades are about. That's what credentials are about. Um, and there's really not room for exploration and curiosity uh, in that idea of what the mission of education is um, either. So I think there's a, you know, a number of factors going on, even though I think that schools could be about fulfilling curiosity. It's a rare one. Right. Okay, you also describe a co-option of curiosity, a a co-option of curiosity for the purposes of power. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, it was uh, fairly disturbing to me, actually. Um, I, you know, did my database searches and looked at the books and the professional journals, but I also um, looked through Google and see sort of what's out there on the internet in a casual way. And I pretty quickly, when I was uh, looking at Curiosity, came upon a special um, issue of the Harvard Business Review. And the entire issue was about curiosity and in effect, how it could be monetized, why businesses should cultivate it, how they should screen managers for having the right level of curiosity and the benefits that would accrue to businesses that had curiosity. And then they had schemes. It reminded me of, you know, of grade school. They were going to have, they recommended having what if days where employees were required to answer what if questions. And then the best answers would be put on the wall with like a gold star (laughs) or something. So, um, you know, businesses are, are seeing, Basically, if you think of curiosity as a motivation, um, it's, I guess I've seen it talked about as a, a knowledge emotion uh, as well as a motivation. And if you think of it as a motivation to learn, I think that one of the, um, one of the things that businesses have been grappling with for, well, for low these many decades, but especially uh, recent decades, um, is what this really great um, guy guy calls, Guillaume Paoli is his name, calls the falling rate of motivation. Mm. He says that capitalism's flaw is actually not going to be in the long run, the falling rate of profit, which is what Marx had said, but the falling rate of motivation that um, as um, industry and business and manufacturing and bureaucracies become more and more structured to control workers, workers will Um, inevitably become less and less motivated. And so then businesses try to enforce by creating yet more structure and workers disengage and step back. So motivation seems to be um, on the minds of businesses, uh, deeply on the minds of businesses. For sure. And I think one of the ways they're trying to capture um, or or trying to, to increase what we could call motivation is through treating curiosity as like this little trick that they can uh, get people to deploy to increase motivation among workers. Hmm. Okay. That was great. Okay. Um, you write uh, at, 
of our current times as one possessing a willful incuriosity. And I'm wondering if you could describe this and its effects. Oh, that's a depressing one to even think about right yeah, now, isn't right, it? Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I actually, you know, I, I wrote the piece, I guess it was a year and a half ago or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess what I was thinking of um, at that time, among many things, but the sort of obvious one was cl- uh, climate denial. Sure, sure. Yep. Um, and now, of course, we're seeing the same thing with COVID mm-hmm. um, in, in spades. It's just, um, yeah. So, uh I mean, I don't know. I think probably people are pretty familiar with it. Maybe they hadn't put that that name to it. Yeah, you gave a I name to it, it, I think. <laughs> yeah, and then it sort of helps people to to crystallize um, something that they're that they're seeing. But beyond um, a willful uh, ignorance that you know is about wanting to deny a specific piece of information, um, you know, I think I also quoted in the piece. Um, um, see who is it uh Sinclair Lewis was it who said it's it's awfully hard, something like it's awfully hard to get a man to um uh how does it go it's it's awfully hard to get a man to understand something when his paycheck depends on him not understanding it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so you know i think that that's a really good um summary of a certain kind of willful ignorance but i think there's also just something um something bigger that that goes back to those feelings of intense anxiety and precarity that people have and you know to, to be curious means to be open to to tolerate ambiguity to acknowledge mm-hmm. uncertainty and that's just really intensely personally threatening when the world itself is in such chaos, we I, we really want some certainty somewhere. And the last thing we want is to begin to question things that we thought we knew. So I think there's a bigger emotional component sure, yeah. to, to the willful ignorance. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And okay, um, you also talk about deep curiosity, and and I'm wondering how can we, for at least for our listeners, how how can we cultivate a deep curiosity or what are some tools we might use? And I don't even know if that's the right word, but how would you approach um, or any recommendations about approaching, embracing a deep curiosity? Yeah. Um, that's kind of a, a hard one because I do think, I mean, I guess I, I, I made clear how uh, really um, important our social circumstances are for letting our curiosity thrive or not. So I guess my... Um, my my ways forward for trying to keep my own curiosity alive are um, to some extent to to try to purposefully step back from some of the um, engagement with those social circumstances. So, um, you know, to sort of when I find myself being sort of swept up in insecurities and like, Oh, so why didn't I get that job that I applied for? And why did I get this rejected from a journal? And I I look at all these other people who have these credentials and these publications so easy. (laughs) Um, And, you know, sort of stepping back and thinking about what my own values are and how I am in fact living them out and have a community of people who hold similar values. It's sort of almost a, don't want to call it a retreat, but a disengagement from that kind of constant self-evaluation in, in negative terms um, and trying to sort of gather myself and reground myself um, in 
the things that I do value that I that I am pursuing so that I'm not constantly comparing myself to others. And I do get a, a, a you know, I can bring about a significant sense of, of peace. And then I, I do actually find my mind um, open to, mm-hmm. to um, being intrigued by things, to picking up and seeing something in the newspaper and wanting to know more. It's a really a quite different state of mind. Um, and I guess the other thing that I would, you know, so sort of cultivating that sense of autonomous worth, I guess is is what I'm trying to say. And I guess the other thing that I um, would urge us to do that's also difficult, but that I think is within partially within our control is to allow ourselves time. So um, to, again, let go of our measure of ourselves as others would see us or as our bosses would see us, you know, are we being productive and are we being efficient and, to say that, you know, curiosity and wonder are inefficient and that's a beautiful thing. And it's okay to sit and daydream for three hours on the couch. Uh, <laughs> and it's okay to just wool gather um, and to, to remind ourselves that we, we think that in our minds maybe, but to start to try to believe that in our, in our hearts and our bellies as well, to give ourselves the, the space for, for that kind of free range. Um, and I guess one other thing I think is important um, is, is to return to that idea of respect, um, to make sure that the curiosity we have is respectful. Um, and in fact, I think, so Cynthia Enlow is a feminist um, political scientist, and she wrote a book called The Curious Feminist, hmm. in which she um, actually defines being a feminist as being someone who takes the lives of women so seriously that you become curious about them. So mm. she's talking about that kind of respectful curiosity to, you know, to be, so if, I think if you start to look at the world around you with respect, you suddenly can become curious about things that you might have dismissed otherwise as not worthy of your curiosity. And boy, there's a lot of layers to the world that are suddenly really interesting that way. Absolutely. That was wonderful. Thank you. Okay, my final question. Uh, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, uh, I, my final question, I'm tending to ask this of everybody that comes on now. Uh, just what books or films or writings are capturing your attention these days? What's, um, what, are you find, what are you curious about? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like um, almost everybody else, I think, in that I have a time poverty. Mm, um, yep. So I was teaching four classes this spring, 100 students. And then, wow. of course, we went online in the middle of the semester. So the only thing that I was able to read this spring um, was that book by um, – a book by that fellow Guillaume Paoli. It was called Demotivational Training. Hmm. Uh, sort of a, a little bit of a tongue in cheek, but um, really a, an interesting read. I didn't agree with all of it, but I, I found it really thought provoking. Um, I'm also just now that the semester's over, rereading a, a book called The Inner Level. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, there was a book that caused a bit of an international splash a few years ago called The Spirit Level, mm-hmm. which is a, a sociological uh, book that sort of talks about how uh, inequality literally gets under our skin. Mm-hmm. And sort of the, the translation of living in socially unequal worlds and how that translates to obesity and diabetes, um, in, in mental illness, uh, drug addiction, and, and social phenomenon like bullying and lack of, of uh, social trust and so on. And they wrote a follow-up to this. I think it's maybe 
year and a half old or so called the inner level that really uh, focuses in on how inequality gets into our psyches. And, uh, you know, I read it once and I don't know, I find that I need to read things a few times before I really absorb them. So um, I've returned returned to that. Hmm. And I also, I'm going to be teaching a a course, since I'm an environmental historian, I'm going to be teaching a course next year called Critical Climate Studies. Hmm. And um, I discovered a book that I just, I love the title. So I haven't haven't read it yet. I looked at it on the Amazon function to decide that it was worth looking at. Um, So I know I'm going to read it. And I thought it was actually totally appropriate um, of a connection to curiosity. It's called what we think about when we try not to think about climate change. Wow, wow yeah, I like that. Yeah. So I think I'll be reading that when I'm done with the inner level. Okay, great. All right, Eva, thank you very much for coming on and sharing with us. And listeners, uh, the article will be linked in the show notes. And uh, if one final question. If people want to reach out to you and find you, or how, how do people find you? Um, I guess probably the best way would be, um, I'm, uh, I teach at, several places, but the email address that seems to be the most stable mm-hmm. is uh, my name. So it's eva.swidler, S-W-I-D-L-E-R, at Curtis, C-U-R-T-I-S, E-D-U, dot E-D-U. It's a music conservatory I teach at. I teach history there. Wonderful. Okay. All right. So uh, thank you again, Eva. I really appreciate you making the time. And Thank you. And thank you. All right, that's our show. And as always, thanks for listening. Come find us on the social medias. Also, please, if you could, if you're still listening to this point, please rate and review the show. Go on iTunes. Give us a a star or five or something. I don't know how many they give you, but uh, go rate and review the show. That's how we get out in front of people, and I would be much appreciative of that. If you want to share this, too, please share it on your socials. That would be awesome, and um, I have T-shirts. If you've listened this long, I have T-shirts. I don't know how I'm going to mail with post office and all that stuff. I think I can get there and with my mask on and do all of that kind of stuff. But um, And I still have some people that I need to send some shirts out to. But I do have some T-shirts. I just realized i got a box of T-shirts behind me right now of the Radical Therapist T-shirts. So if you want something, please shoot me an email at theradicaltherapist at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see what we can do. And I got stickers. If you want just Radical Therapist stickers, i got a bunch of those. So I'll send those out to you too. So... Thanks for listening to the show. As always, I'm Dr. Chris Hoff, and yeah, thanks for listening.